there were two things that she knew for certain. One, she would never return to India. And secondly, she would never become a missionary. The rebellious teenager loved spending time with her friends on the bright green lawns of her private high school along the leafy banks of the Connecticut River. She had grown up in India, daughter of a medical missionary doctor at a time when their part of India had been gripped by famine. She had watched as a, a community of six million people died. The images of emaciated bodies crumpled on the side of the road haunted her, as did her own memory, memory of handing out rationed food to children who were starving. She knew she could never go back to that. She resented it when her parents chose to go back to work in South India, but she stayed in America, and after high school, she planned to go to Wellesley College. But in 1890, Ida's mother grew extremely ill, and Ida knew she had to make one last brief trip to India to help her ailing mother. And so she sailed there and joined her parents on a mission compound in Chindivanam. In Ida's words, though, one night in the mission bungalow, something happened that changed her life forever. She writes, as I sat alone at my desk in my room in the little bungalow, I heard steps coming up the, to the veranda, and I looked up, and I saw a very tall, fine-looking Brahmin gentleman. I asked him what I could do for him, and he said that his little wife, a mere child, was in labor, and the untrained barber's wives who were delivering the child said that they could do nothing for her, and he asked if I would come and help her. I explained that I knew nothing about midwifery, but that my father is a doctor, missionary doctor, and he would take the call. But the man drew to himself and said, your father come into my castle, my cast home, and take care of my wife? She had better die than have something like that happen. Later, I took him over to my father's study and we pleaded with him, but he refused. Father urged him, but again, he, he wouldn't do it. He asked me to go, but I couldn't help. After a time, though, I heard steps again on the veranda and I jumped up, hoping the man had returned to change his mind. But instead, I saw a, a Brahmin, instead of the Brahmin gentleman, I saw a Muslim man who had come to me. And I was horrified when he gave the same plea for help. His young teenage wife was dying in labor, and he wanted to know if I could come and help. I explained again that I knew nothing about midwifery. I offered my father. He pleaded, but he said she had better die than have a man come into the house. And then a third time it happened. A high caste Hindu man, his wife was dying in a complicated labor. And I explained that I did not know how to deliver a baby, particularly not a complicated one. The next morning, I heard the tom-tom drum beating in the village and it struck terror in my heart because it was the death message. I sent our servant who had come early to the village to find out about the three women, and he returned telling me that all three had died. As a, as a funeral passed our house that morning, it made me very unhappy. I couldn't bear to think of these young girls as dead, and I shut myself in my room and thought very seriously about the misery of so many women in India. In the face of such suffering, there was nothing a selfish American teenager in 1890 could do to save three young wives facing complicated deliveries, three lives lost, 
and a selfish American teenager was confronted by the brutal reality of death and helplessness. She longed to escape. She longed to get back to America where her friends awaited her, where food was plentiful, where medical care was available, where everything was familiar and easy for her, where life was so much easier and so insulated from the suffering that she saw all around her. In America, she could go to Wellesley College. She could get a degree. She could marry someone important and have a good life as a society lady. But the reality of suffering and the longing to escape it burdened her. We all have that longing to get away from suffering and hardship, to surround ourselves with good things, to climb up the proverbial ladder to a place where we can be surrounded by ease and comfort. And Jesus sees this same longing in his disciples, and he speaks into it. This is the gospel of Christ from the 20th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you desire, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? They answered, We are able. Jesus says to them, Indeed, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give, but for those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles exercise mastery over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What do we see here? First, we see that biblical leadership, whether by men or women, is always leadership from below. We tend to default, as the disciples did, to the world's authority-based, pyramid-shaped, a top-down structure uh, when we think of leadership. And yet, Jesus uh, names that for what it is. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles exercise mastery over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. That's the way it works in this world. You know, the big guys get on top, they dominate. Governments give the rules, they give the laws, they use coercion to force people to do what they want. Governments don't rule by the power of suggestion. They have authority to kill you if they want to, to make you comply against your will with whatever it is that they're demanding. We know how this works. It works, you know, whether it's, whether those who come to power do so through diplomatic or or, or through through democratic election or an inherited throne or a coup d'etat, they're always going to use their authority to coerce compliance with what they think needs to happen. It's a pyramid structure. The rulers rule from the top. They give the orders down, and the people, the little people at the bottom follow orders, or they get punished. And often when someone follows Jesus, they, they still have this software working in their computer, in their brain. And they assume that, oh, we're supposed to still do that. We're just supposed to be nicer about it. And and that's what the disciples, uh, this is 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were thinking. And so they get their mom to go up and ask a favor of Jesus. Hey, can you let us be on top? They're asking for the number two and number three spots in the kingdom of God. You know, they understand, okay, we can't be the top guy. That's Jesus. That's obvious. But we could be just one notch down from Jesus on our own thrones. <laughs> you know, they're wanting thrones. Uh, and it still happens with prominent Christian leaders who rise and, and build their own kingdom um, and give orders and tell people what to do and, and, and rely on coercion in order to get people to follow their agenda um, to build their kingdom. Uh, some of you know what it's like to have been at the bottom of that kind of pyramid in the house of God. Uh, some of you have been victims of abusive churches where you pressured to comply, commanded what to do, warned of divisiveness when you ask honest, respectful questions. Some of you have been shunned, you have been punished, you have been maligned, you have been slandered. And behind all of this abuse is a group of professing believers who, like James and John, were simply assuming that the church leadership works the way Gentiles, that is non-Christians, do leadership from the top down through an authority relationship, a pyramid structure of the rulers and the ruled beneath them. Um, grant that one of these two sons of mine can sit at your right and left hands. You know, the world's approach to leadership is a pyramid structure. The powerful people on top, little people on bottom, leadership is top down and it's based on authority, upon issuing of directives. It's how the world does leadership. And Jesus takes this pyramid and he inverts it. He inverts it with Jesus at the bottom as slave to all of us. And he says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles exercise authority over them, not so with you. It's not a pyramid structure for followers of Jesus. It's a reverse pyramid. It's upside down, inverted pyramid. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, that is leader, must be your slave. True greatness is not found in having authority to tell people what to do. True greatness is rushing to the bottom of the pyramid and doing the unpleasant, self-sacrificial, hard things that you might rather somebody else do. Jesus didn't design his church to be an organization led from above, but rather to be an organism led from the bottom by servants who care and love and get outside of themselves enough to focus on what everybody else needs and who earn their respect and the trust of those who choose freely to follow them because they see their Christian character and they know that they're more concerned about their own, about your soul than they are about their own. Um, I remember many, many years ago having an intern who um, would always look enviously at other interns teaching an adult class or maybe getting once in a blue moon to preach in a pulpit or, or leading a community group and, and, and Every time he'd say, hey, I want to do these things, I would give him a nice, simple, tedious task to help somebody with something, and he would complain the entire time. He never did get to lead a community group because he couldn't serve. He wanted to be on top. Everybody listening to me, not... And, and, and ended up his ministry failed over many years. Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. View others above yourself, so you're thinking of yourself as the slave, the bottom of the, the pyramid. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 
to the elders among you, Peter writes, be shepherds of the flock that's under your care. Do not pursue dishonest gain, but be eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. They lead through example. Think about Jesus on the night before he went to the cross. What did he do? But he he got down on his hands and knees, took out his outer garments, got a tub of water, and washed his disciples' disgusting, dirty, first century, walking through dirt roads that animals are on, feet. It's biblical leadership, whether by a man or by a woman, is always from below because Jesus has inverted the pyramid. So how does this speak to the question of women in Christian ministry? Um, it speaks to both sides who tend to have a worldly assumption about what it means to lead. Um, for example, whenever someone argues that a woman shouldn't be over the church, I want to point out that we're not talking about who gets to be over the church, but who gets to be under the church? Who gets to be the servant? Who, who gets to be the slave? Uh, you know, it's the inverted pyramid. Uh, we don't lead by hovering over people, passing down decisions for them to follow. That's, that's nothing of what church leadership is like. We serve people and wash feet. Similarly, on the other side, when I hear it's sexist that women don't get to be over the church, I, I hear the same confusion because with biblical leadership, we're discerning who gets to be at the bottom, beneath the church, and not who gets to be at the top. Overseers, biblically, are really underseers according to what Jesus is teaching us here. It's not who gets to be in the U.S. Senate, but who gets to mop the Senate mailroom floor. And for those of us who, on account of the servant leadership that we have offered, therefore have some influence, and people are actually willing to listen to us because we've loved them and served them as their slave, uh, whatever our views on ordination, we have to ask ourselves the question, how can I use whatever strength or respect or reputation or influence I have to empower the ministry and the voice of other believers, men and women alike? Um, biblical leadership, whether by men or women, is always from below. Now, second question, why is that so hard? <laughs> it's hard because if you're doing it right, it's a lot of work. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, first among you must be your slave. And being a slave, that meant something in the first century. Today we say, oh, that's just flowery language. No, a slave was somebody who never got a day off, who didn't have paid vacations, who always had to be on call, who always had to be willing to get out of bed to help somebody because they wanted him. Uh, a slave never got to decide what they wanted to do. You know, they were told what to do and they didn't have the authority to say no. Um, you know, when I ask what legitimate authority ordained elders in a church have, according to our book of church order, um, all they're allowed to do is serve people and tell them what the Bible says. We don't have the authority to legislate. Very few decisions. We don't have authority to legislate because God is the legislator and the legislation is his word and we're not allowed to add to it or subtract from it. We have to deal with all of it. Um, that part's already done. So if you're thinking who gets to make decisions, well, they're already made. Um, there are a few in our book of church order. Elders do have the authority to set the time and place for a worship service. And that's 1045 a.m. on Sundays. I don't know when that was decided. It was a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure whoever got around that table and made that decision was not feeling particularly powerful by that. You know, it's, it's seriously. They get to approve guest preachers to make sure that they're preaching the Bible. And that's it. You know, um, 
Day-to-day -day programming is made, decided by staff. Um, so what do elders mainly do? Well, at our monthly meetings, we spend about an hour talking about what all the prayer needs are within the congregation. Who's hurting, who's in trouble, whose you know, marriage is on the rocks, and we, we pray. We spend a lot of time praying for all of those people. That's the first hour. Then we spend about 10 minutes getting briefed on updates about ministry stuff, and then we go into executive session and do the hard work of pastoring people who are at a crisis point. Um, and then at the end, we review any decisions we made, which is usually zero to one, uh, and then we, you know, adjourn with prayer. Um, and that's it. That's not a glory position. That's a servant position. Um, between meetings, we get to interview new members to hear their profession of faith. We get to make phone calls and take phone calls and meet with people who need to talk about something going on in their life. We, we check in with community groups or others to see how they need prayer or support. We hold a communion tray on Sunday mornings instead of sitting with your family. Um, it's a lowly role, a servant's role. We don't even have a bulletin that has the, the elders listed on the back. You know, there's no glory in it uh, except the glory of being a servant with Jesus in his kingdom. Jesus inverted the pyramid, uh, and that means it's hard work. Um, I remember, you know, Sam Dolby at Revoice in 2018. We had volunteers, like 50 volunteers from the church, and Sam was in charge of the volunteers who were there to just make sure the building was doing whatever it needed to do. And every time there was a disgusting job, like, you know, a toilet that was overflowing, Sam would always take that job himself. And he gave everybody else the easier jobs. Um, because that's what leadership is. That's the heart of a servant leader. Um, look at our deacons. They don't arrive at church early and unlock all the doors because it gives them a power rush. They don't wait around for an hour after the worship service meeting with people coming in off the street who need financial assistance, removing the traffic barriers from Skinker, hoping they don't get run over while they're doing it so that we have places to park, walking the building an hour and 15 minutes after everybody else has left, turning off every lights, all the lights and looking for leaks because there are always leaks, and then locking all the doors because it makes them feel powerful. It really doesn't. It doesn't at all. They don't spend a week trying to line up movers to help somebody in need and then give up their Saturday morning carting furniture up and downstairs because of wealth or power or glory. They're depleting themselves for the benefit of all of us and our neighbors who are in need, and they do it because we all need somebody to take the lead and the initiative so that we can then follow them in serving with them. Uh, it's thankless tasks, but it's biblical leadership with an inverted pyramid, uh, Jesus leading us from below and teaching us to do likewise, not through authority, but through love. And love can be hard work. Uh, no one often says thank you. So I want to say to the deacons and deaconesses, thank you for serving and leading us all in serving so that we can grow in love. And look at our deaconess, deaconesses. There's no one who works as hard as our deaconesses hours spent helping line up meals for families who need support, helping provide pastoral support when a male elder is not the best person for the job, brainstorming how to provide care to members in crisis, cleaning out storage rooms so that the church ministries can function better, checking in on members who are shut in, uh, making a lot of phone calls to find out what somebody's real needs are and, and line up the help for them that they need, 
And they do this because we as a family need somebody to take the thankless tasks of leadership and provide that for us so that we can grow in love as a church family. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. That's why it's hard to lead from below, because it's hard work. Um, and you have to take yourself out of the equation. Um, being a slave means you get to give up some of your own needs, at least at that moment. Uh, a slave in antiquity didn't get to factor him or herself into the equation. Uh, they were serving others from a lower position. And as a leader, I have to be able to do that and, and, and sometimes realize that, okay, part of being a leader is taking blame when something is broken or not right and giving credit wherever you can give credit. You know, it's the opposite of the world's top-down way. A boss in the real world is always going to take the credit when something goes good. And a boss in the real secular, non-Christian world is always going to pass the blame when something goes wrong. And Jesus teaches us by his example to do just the opposite. And so when there's a, a quarrel at a community group or something, that's an opportunity for a group leader to say, hey guys, this is my fault. If I had been doing a better job leading this group and making sure that everybody is heard and everybody is understood, then this wouldn't have happened. And then the elder gets to say, no, 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 this is my fault, guys. If I were doing a better job checking in with you and praying for you guys and, and coming and visiting your group, then, then, then you would have known a better way to go about this. And then I get to say, no, 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 guys, this is my fault. If I were doing a better job leading this church, I would be making sure that everybody's voice is heard and everybody is respected and everybody is learning to grow in Jesus. And so it's really my fault. And then Jesus says, no, 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 Greg, I'm going to take the blame. I'm going to carry it all, and he takes it straight to the cross and receives the wrath of the Father for that. That's leadership. That's leadership. Giving the credit and taking the blame. Uh, the real test, if you just hear one thing in this sermon, other than thank you deacons and deaconesses, um, if you just hear one thing, it's this. The real test of servant leadership is how you feel when somebody talks to you like a servant how you feel when somebody treats you like a slave. When you're working hard for somebody and it's one in the morning and you've been up trying to get somebody else what they need and then, and then they turn around and criticize you and say, that's not really what I wanted, I want it this way. If your immediate response is, how dare you after all this I've done for you, you're not thinking like a slave. You're thinking like a rich person who gets to make decisions and is giving charity to someone. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're the slave. When somebody treats you like a slave, when somebody talks to you like a slave, you can just say, okay, but how can I love this person well? That's when you know. That's the real test of a servant's heart in leadership. Those are the people that we want leading because those are the people who know how to be a slave for other people's sake. To lead from below, you have to risk becoming a zero, and that's hard. So how is it possible? Last question. If you trust Jesus to be serving you, that will free you up to stop serving yourself and start instead serving others. If you know Jesus is washing your feet, then you don't have to worry about washing your own feet. You can focus on washing somebody else's feet. Jesus is not just our example. He is the great slave rescuer who rescued us by becoming our servant. He says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When our hearts become cruciform as those who, who our best friend Jesus, God in the flesh, potentate of time, 
got to look that one up. You know, if he became human and suffered and was betrayed and slandered and died and absorbed all the judgment for all of humanity's injustice, and he did that for me, that means I'm that bad, so bad that he had to do that. But I am so loved that he did it freely and willingly because he wasn't willing to enter eternity without me and without you. And so he paid the price. See, the ransom he paid to give his life as a ransom for many. As you trust Jesus to be that for you, then it frees you up because what Jesus did in becoming a ransom, that means he paid the price to set the prisoner or, or the slave free. He paid the price by taking the blame and by giving the credit. On the cross, he took the blame for all of your sins and he paid the price in full and there is nothing left for you to pay. It is done. And then he takes his righteousness by which he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and he credited it to you so that you were even called, as if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible calls you a saint, literally a holy one, one who's been clothed with the holiness of Jesus and is therefore fully acceptable in the eyes of the Father. Self-giving love of a God who gives up power to save us. The self-giving love seen by God on the cross. When you can see a church family that is pervaded by the aroma of Jesus, the aroma of grace, when you see a congregation that fights not over the crown but over the towel, who, who give up things that are theirs by right in order to take care of others, when you see that, that community of love, friends, there you are seeing the church that Jesus died. To create. Three times that night, three different men had come to Ida Scudder, a selfish American teenager by her own account, at her parents' missionary compound in South India. And three times she was asked to do something that she did not have the basic skill to do. She writes, I could not sleep at all that night, it was terrible. Within the very touch of my hand were three young girls dying because there was no woman to help them. I spent much of the night in anguish and prayer. I didn't want to spend my life in India. My friends were begging me to return to the joyous opportunities of a young girl in America, and I somehow felt that I could not give that up. We've got a photo of Ida here, um, beautiful woman. She says, I went to bed in the early morning after praying for much guidance. I think that was the first time I ever met God face to face. And all that time it seemed that he was calling me into this work. Early in the morning I heard the tom-tom beating. I sent out our servant and realized that all three of these girls had died during the night. Again I shut myself in my room and I thought very seriously about the condition of all of these women. And after much thought and prayer I went to my father and mother and told them that I must go home and study medicine and come back to India to help these women. Ida then went to medical school in Philadelphia and at Cornell. Toward the end of her training, a colleague pointed out the need for a hospital for women and children in Belor. Efforts at fundraising were disappointing, but then a week before she was going to set sail, a businessman named Robert Shell gifted the entire amount she would need to build the hospital. Ida reached Velour on January 1st of 1900 
starting an internship by observing and assisting her father in medical work, but within months, her father had fallen sick and died, leaving her without a mentor or a guide and helpless to cope. But after a few weeks, she began with the little that she had, a medical degree, a few months of experience, and a 10 by 12 foot room in the mission bungalow for a dispensary. The cook's wife is her unskilled medical assistant and a horse buggy to visit patients at their homes. Small beginnings and the trust of patients led to more. Eventually she had two beds in, in, in the guest room and a few huts around the bungalow for inpatients. And in 1902, she opened a 40 bed Christian hospital. It grew and needed more staff. We've got another picture here. A course in pharmacology was started in 1905. Then another woman was invited to join as nursing superintendent. Uh, they then started a nursing school. And after long years of being the only doctor facing this impossible caseload of maternity, surgical, and general cases, Ida realized what she really needed to do was start a medical school for women in India. It was a crazy idea with one doctor, 40 beds, and not a single classroom. But commitments came in from churches abroad and from uh, the Union Missionary Medical and, and the Union Missionary Medical School for Women was opened with the support of the British government. She then began a licentiate medical practitioner course for assistant surgeons. She selected her first batch of 18 girls to uh, 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 and trained them in rented classrooms. And in 1918, in the first government exams, her 18 female proteges had the 18 highest scores of anybody who took their entrance exams. Um, a teaching hospital was built in 1928, and by 1932, a large residential college campus arose. Here, Ida planned a place where students and staff lived and studied and played and prayed and worshiped together, something that would remain a part of the institution. We've got another third slide here. Um, the Christian Medical College at Velour that had begun as a one-room clinic became the first in India to perform open heart surgery, neurosurgery, renal transplants, bone marrow transplants. Equally, it led the way in neglected areas like leprosy work, community health, rehabilitation, mental illness. It ranked as a top private, it was ranked as the top private medical college in all of India. It includes top-tier nursing and medical schools, a 2,000-bed teaching hospital that sees 6,000 patients a day with multiple campuses scattered over hundreds of acres and alumni around the globe that carry on this legacy, all because one admittedly selfish American teenager heard Jesus calling her one night in her bedroom to give up her privileged American life and spend her life instead serving others and training them to go and serve others still, to serve and equip a mighty woman of God who descended into greatness, affecting millions of lives. Let's pray.